John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along with me as I read. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, I was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As we already said, the title and the theme for this morning is Sacrificial Worship. And this picture up here is meant to kind of give us in our minds, some, something of the image of what was going on when Mary does this extravagant act of sacrificial worship. It's awesome to come back to the Gospel of John this morning, and I want to thank Nathan again for preaching last week. An excellent time in First Samuel. But to kind of catch us up where we are, um, if you didn't catch it from the context already, this is six days before the Passover. Jesus comes back to Bethany, and this time coming to Bethany, there was joy. The last time he came to Bethany, he knew something had already happened that had devastated a family. In chapter 11, when he decides to go to Bethany, he says, our friend Lazarus has died, but I go that I may wake him up. Now this trip to Bethany, since Jesus has already raised Lazarus from the dead, this trip is one of celebration, one of, of fellowship and of joy and excitement. Mary and Martha had beckoned Jesus, the one whom you love is sick, just days before. And when Jesus appeared, both, both sisters had the same response in the first place. If you would have been here, our brother would not have died. Now, they will welcome Jesus back to Bethany for celebration. Have him come through the door and, and not be met with tears and mourning, but to be met with excitement, with joy. This point in John's gospel, John's telling of what Jesus has done on this earth, is an amazing uh, kind of point for us to land on for a second and recognize that Jesus' public ministry has ended, largely. He's no longer going to be speaking to the large crowds of mixtures of believers and non-believers, those who would believe if only such and such a thing would happen. But he's moving from a matter of public ministry to private di discipleship. And what is fantastic in here as well to notice as we get into this is that this offering that Mary gives to Jesus stands in direct contrast to what we have seen uh, the larger response of Jesus to be in recent chapters. Even in his raising Lazarus from the dead, this gracious, compassionate act 
that resulted in so many saying, we need to kill this guy. This is the end. He's gone too far this time. And we saw at the end of the passage that we read too, not only is it enough for them in their minds to plan to kill Jesus, but who else do they need to kill? Lazarus. Kind of a funny thing to consider in your plans. Lazarus just came back from the grave and you would like to kill him. What goes through your mind as you plan how you're going to kill a man who's already conquered death and come back? How do you kill the man who brought the other man back from life, back from the dead? Well, certainly they're going to find out soon enough what will happen when you try to put the Son of God on a cross. A couple weeks ago, I was working in my office at home, and my two-year-old came into the office and she had, remember these even from the 90s, these little My Little Ponies. And this is kind of a totem in our household, I'm afraid to say. Um, these, these little ponies are the object of much blood, sweat, and tears between the two sisters that reside in my home. There's, there's been arguments over how to brush the pony's hair. There's been arguments over whose pony belongs to whom. Um, all sorts of things. And so the posture that both girls take now that they know which pony is theirs, and I did offer to cut one in half to make it even, but they didn't go for it. The posture that they've taken is, this is now mine. I will not be leaving it anywhere. I will not be giving it to anyone. My comb for my little pony is the green one, and if you touch it, you will die. Oh, no, I mean, not die. There will be, yes, suffering. It's, it's a, it has been very heated, and it has since calmed down quite a bit. But when I was in my office and my two-year-old comes in carrying her pony, I expected nothing but the parade of, look at my beautiful pink pony. I combed her hair today. Isn't it pretty? What do you think about a bow? Those kind of questions is what I expected. But what I was met with was, in fact, this little, little head coming up next to my desk and the plopping of the My Little Pony right on my desk and her saying, you're not going to believe this, edge of your seat. Daddy, you can have this. And I go, say what? Really? Right, do you know what you just said? She said, yeah, you can set it on your desk and look at it. She didn't say I could play with it, of course. But she set it on my desk, and I felt obliged and obligated, in fact, to keep it there for the remainder of the day until I came back and noticed it was gone and just had to make sure that the right child took the right pony at that point, which they did, but I was struck by how much she must love me. Not because I'm such a great dad. But what I recognized in that moment was that love compels us to sacrifice. Even for a two-year-old. Who maybe in her mind was thinking, I'm going to leave it here for like two minutes and then as soon as he's gone, I'm taking it back. I don't know. But there was no releasing of these ponies between the sisters. They were held with an iron grip. And for a two-year-old even to let go of such a grip upon her most prized possession was something to be noted. What Mary does, what Martha does, what Lazarus does, what all who gathered together to celebrate Jesus have done is offer a sacrifice of worship. Offer worship that is sacrificial. There's a place in David's life where he needs a place to make an offering before the Lord. And I couldn't tell you the reference because I'm doing the thing I always tell myself, don't do it, but here I am doing it. There's a place in the Bible where David says, 
that he needs to make an offering to the Lord. And he finds the place where he can build the altar. And, and the man who owns the land says, hey, do it. It's yours. Have it. It's your land. Make, offer a sacrifice to the Lord. It's a gift to you. And David says something so profound. He says, I will not make an offering to the Lord that costs me nothing. And so I want to ask you at the outset of our time in God's word this morning, what does it cost you to worship God? Sunday morning, a couple hours, getting ready, being here, listening to the goofy bald guy, getting out, being hungry, ready for lunch. Does it cost you getting up early in the morning so that you can read the Bible and say, look, Lord, I did that? Does it cost you pulling your car off to the side of the road and helping that person who clearly needs help? Does it cost you these things? Is the question I want to ask. Or things like it, perhaps. When Jesus appeared in whomever's house, this may very well have been um, the house of one Simon, perhaps. It, it could also have been uh, somewhere else. We're not entirely sure. There's some other accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. That is, Matthew and Mark both share a similar story, story to what John shares in chapter 12. But when Jesus walks through the doors and they know he's here and the reason for their gathering has happened, there's no expense spared in any way. The best wine is brought out first, contrary to what Jesus did at the beginning of his public ministry, bringing the best wine out at the end, if you remember that miracle. We can imagine things like the fatted calf being killed. We can expect that the mourners who were paid to come and wail and weep over the death of Lazarus have been said, get out of here! We don't need you anymore. Bring the musicians. Bring the celebrators. The fanciest tableware would be brought out. They're not eating off of paper plates for this. Perhaps candles are being lit so that the party can extend as long as possible into the night. Flowers adorning the home. Nothing is spared when it comes to celebrating who Jesus is and what he has done. Imagine Martha. We imagine her in another context being a busybody and coming to the Savior and saying, Lord, tell my sister to help me out with all this stuff. She's just sitting at your feet. I'm trying to do all this stuff right here, right? And Jesus says, hey, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things. Mary's picked the better thing here. But not so in this case, I don't think. I don't think this is Martha the busybody when we see um, in verse 2, Martha served. And those two little words, let's not skip over that and imagine, oh, we know Martha serving, sure, right. She's just that in panic mode, and I hope everything's perfect. I don't think so at all. From what we saw in John chapter 11, she was very willing and ready to believe Jesus and anything that she was going to teach her through this. And so we have to believe that she too is celebrating. She's not being a busybody, but she just can't stop herself from doing all she can to welcome Jesus and to honor him with a smile on her face. You're not going to find a lot of smiles on my faces when I'm washing dishes, but this is the case for Martha. Perhaps sweeping the floor, washing dishes, preparing food. She sees her sister down the hall as Jesus is reclining at the table. And if you remember, the table was very low. It wouldn't be like tables for us today. And, and the men would lay on their left side and lay around the table and eat that way. So they were reclining at table is what we have here. Martha sees her sister, notice that Jesus is sitting at the table and sees that this is her opportunity. She runs to the back room and she's going to come out with something. What does Martha think? She sees, oh, yes. The nard. Bring the nard. This is the time. This very expensive ointment. This is the time to use it. Break the jar. Anoint our Savior. What could we hold back? See, back then, 
Perfume wasn't just something you could pick up at the store. This was an expensive ointment. This was imported from India. This spikenard, as it is literally called, was something that would be the culmination of the work of uh, pulling so many plants together and breaking them down to just get the very smallest bit, the very smallest amount from so many plants. And she had a pound of it, literally, I think, I think it was under 12 quarts or something. So just under one of our own understandings of pound. And in order to get it out, there was no lid to pop off. You had to break the jar. When you break the jar, that's it. Like, you better be aiming where you want to point that, put that perfume, right? She brings it without reservation to the feet of her Savior. In fact, in Matthew and Mark, we see that she did not just anoint the feet, but she anointed the head. Matthew, of course, wants to emphasize the head because he's talking about the crowning of Jesus and that he is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. But John takes a different focus. He doesn't mention that Jesus' head was anointed, but this pound of spikenard most certainly covered his entire body. There was nothing that she was holding back. And when she comes to wash his feet with this ointment, she realizes, I've poured so much on Jesus' feet, he's going to get up and slip across the floor and fall on his back. So she has to dry his feet. How do you dry the feet of the Savior? What towel is the good choice? I know I'm thinking of my own kitchen. I'm thinking, oh, there's some hand towels that we use for, you know, wiping down the counter and things like that. That's, that's not appropriate. So she lets her hair down and dries the feet of her Savior with her hair. Mary shows us what the right response is to what Christ has done for us at the cross. She shows us what sacrificial worship really is. Sacrificial in the first place. That this spikenard was expensive. Would have been, as Judas points out selfishly, 300 denarii's worth. About a year's salary. Can you imagine working for a year and then in a moment breaking the jar of all your earnings and pouring it on the feet of Jesus? We'll get to why Judas was upset about that. But first of all, again, sacrificial worship should cost us something. You should recognize the timing of this because this is not something that we can do. We can't say, what's the application of the passage today? Find Jesus, pour some expensive perfume on his feet. No, we can't do that literally, right? Jesus is with us by his spirit indwelling believers. So we need to recognize the timing of all of this is before his burial. You know, this celebration would have kind of calmed down a little bit when Jesus says, hey, leave her alone. She's done this for my burial. I'm going to die. I don't imagine the quiet in the room at that moment. Mary's attitude is one that says, what is mine that he is unworthy of? Of course she ran to the back room. Of course Martha was looking and saying, yes, get the perfume. Do whatever honors Christ with it. One of our most prized possessions. Something that just days before they, they had passed over using and anointing the body of their own brother whom they loved dearly. They didn't even use it for him. Jesus knew when he says, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Well, he wasn't going to be buried that day. But this symbolic gesture pointed to that very thing. Worship that is right before the Lord must be sacrificial. It must also include adoration. This is why we read from Psalm 95 this morning together. A beautiful psalm about coming to the Lord in worship, particularly in song. But listen again to verses 6 and 7 that you said this morning. 
Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Is this not the attitude of Mary as she comes to worship her Savior, as the sheep of His hand, to kneel and bow down before her Lord, her Maker? This is not just an act of ritualistic religion. This is an act of adoration. To wash someone's feet, someone's stinky, dirty feet. We'll see this later on in in some months to come, Lord willing, that Jesus is going to turn this symbol around and make it a pattern for his own disciples when he washes their feet. To take the posture of a servant for us. If he's willing to do that, are we not to recognize our place as servants of his, as sheep of his pasture, but to recognize his love in the midst of it. Lastly, humility, anointing the feet rather than, again, the head. Mary was always there. This was where she knew her Lord. If you look in the Gospel of John, you see that Mary would be, or sorry, if you look at the whole of the New Testament, we see Mary listening at the feet of Jesus We see her in John chapter 11, mourning at the feet of Jesus. When Jesus came, she fell down to his feet and was weeping over the loss of her brother. And now she's worshiping, where? At his feet yet again. This is where Mary knows her Lord. This is not to say that Jesus is so um, pompously overlording um, his relationship with Mary. You're just dust. You're nothing. But she recognizes those two mysteries that we sang about, her worth and her unworthiness. Jesus has welcomed her in. But her unworthiness compels her to fall at his feet. Do you remember that song from like 1999? I can only imagine that even got on secular radio. And he asks this question. Um, when, when you see Jesus, he says, would I stand in your presence or to my knees would I fall? I think Mary answers the question. Having a right attitude of sacrificial worship before Jesus brings us to a place of humility, brings us to the feet of Christ, listening to him, even at the place of mourning and now at worshiping. Is this how you perceive your Lord this morning? One to whom you can come and fall at his feet to listen, to learn, to understand him more, or to mourn, to say, Lord, this terrible thing has happened. I can't bear the weight of this struggle, and all I can do is fall before your feet and say, please help me. And then this morning, can you at the place of your heart, when you gather to worship with God's people, fall at his feet and worship? Mary has done a great thing. For Christ, first and foremost, secondarily for us, to consider our own heart's posture. And then there's Judas, the guy whose name has become a cuss word in Christian circles. Judas comes in. In other tellings of the story, we hear that Judas was not alone, that some of his other disciples were also very upset with this. But Judas is the one John points out as the spokesperson, someone we haven't heard from at all in this gospel. Judas, what do you have to say? John tells us in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he was about to betray him. If you're John or any of the other 12 disciples, I don't think you can talk about Judas without calling him the one who was about to betray Jesus. I want you to think behind the eyes and behind the pen of John for a moment and imagine him writing these words, Then Judas said that thing. 
Judas, who was going to betray him. Do you feel the stark contrast so quickly? Even in that little word, but? Mary has poured out this perfume, a year's worth of salary, to simply worship her Savior. There was no practical use for this. Judas would have looked at this and said, he's going to go right back outside and the smell's going to be gone before we know it. What's the point? He who was about to betray him says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Doesn't your heart just well up sometimes with aggression at the self-righteous, pious attitudes of those around you? Isn't it so easy for us to look at a guy like Judas and go, how dare you? What an ugly thing. There was never a worse why question asked in the history of mankind. And yet this is what Judas says. Without the um, comment in verse 6, there might be some who might say, you know what? He might be right. 300 denarii is a lot of money working for a year to simply spend a moment pouring perfume on a man's feet, maybe that is wasteful. And the truth is, is that if Jesus is just any other man, it absolutely is, right? Can you think of one person besides Jesus whom you could say, I'm going to just blow an entire year's worth of salary on their feet? To put it into today's terms, to think I'm going to give them a $30,000 pedicure I mean, you can get a $30 pedicure, I'm pretty sure, right? I don't know what the difference really is, but to imagine spending that much money. And then, verse 6. John is very careful to point out, Judas is not righteous in this. Not only does he have a wrong view of Jesus, he has a wrong motive as well. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. What a dirt bag right? This is the rabbi who says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He doesn't even have a home. We see in so many places in the Gospels that Jesus and his disciples, the money that they used, that they would use to give to the poor. This is why Judas asks it. Hey, the normal thing that we do with money is we give it to the poor, and by that I mean me, this poor man. And to think that so much of that money was not actually given to the poor. But that Judas took on the role of Jesus' personal tax collector and said, yes, Jesus, this is your money, but this is my money. It's reverse tithing. Right? It's ugly. And it's so easy for us when we come to these passages to say, Lord, what are you teaching me? Oh, Mary, beautiful. Wonderful act of worship. That's what I'm like. Judas. Ew. That's repulsive. I would never do anything like that. Do you hear that voice in your heart at all? Perhaps you need to ask yourself this question every time you come to God's word, but particularly when we come to this J word, Judas. We put him in such a different category. He's the only man that we have in Scripture where God says it would have been better for that man if he had never been my disciple, never been uh, part of Judea. Uh, no, he would never have been born. You can't say that about anyone else. You don't know 
to you? I don't know. But Jesus himself says, the one who's going to betray me, it would be better that that man would never be born. And we see the heart of this man right here. And we go, you are right, Jesus. So what makes you so special? Why are you so different than Judas? Why is it that God has sovereignly allowed Judas, the son of perdition, the man who would be better for him never to have been born, a sinner, to go on in his ways of pilfering money from the pocket of Jesus himself, ultimately to betray him for pocket change? Why is it that the Lord would allow that to happen, and yet for you to sit here longing to be the one at Jesus' feet, pouring out the spikenard, offering a worship an act of worship that would be satisfying to him. Why are you so different? This morning, I want to call you to test your heart's valuation of Christ. Because that is the difference between Mary and Judas. And I want you to put yourself somewhere on that spectrum. I hope that you find yourself over here. But I also hope that you recognize that over here is not so far away from that. Because it is all too easy for us to find the joy that we have in offering sacrifices of worship to Jesus as something to our own benefit and to let that be the true motivation and to let everybody else see, oh, yes, Nick really loves serving the Lord in this way. And I want you all to think that because in my heart, I used to take the money for myself. I used to do the things for myself. I used to leave on Sunday mornings and go, I am a great preacher. I've never said that, by the way. Usually I struggle with the opposite problem. But... How easy it is for us to let people see us as we are when there is perhaps grace silent in our hearts over some of these things because we have not addressed them. Judas was committed to the betrayal of the one he ought to have known. Mary was committed to serving the one who redeemed her. There's a stark contrast here, but we can see the attitude of both of these individuals in the hearts of a believer all too easily, and it comes down to the valuation of Jesus. Is Jesus worth that precious bottle of spikenard in the back room? Or is there something you can say in your possessions, in your life, or as we say, for the totality of your stewardship, in your time, in your talent, or in your treasure, that you could say, he can have everything else, though but not that. Are you willing to break the bottle for Christ? To break the jar and to pour out your entire heart in worship to Christ? That is not to say, give the biggest tithe or spend the most time at the church. I'm talking about your personal holiness. Because if that's not the place that we're focused on in this regards this morning, then all you're going to do is say, well, should I make a bigger show of my life in Christ to other people, or should I not? That's not what this is getting at at all. Mary's example, again, is not for us to say, let's all go spend a year's salary on something so we can give it to Jesus. The matter is the matter of our heart, and if we are wholly devoted to, to him. And we see in Judas why this is such a problem, because he thought so little of the Savior. To him, Christ was not greater than his own prophet. He was not willing to stop stealing from Jesus because he couldn't see him as greater than what he could get for himself. Secondly, Christ was not greater than a lying piety that he would put in front of everyone else. Judas was just one of the 12 disciples. And apparently what we see from the rest of the story is none of the other disciples saw it coming. We see it coming because John tells us, right? Every time you see the word Judas in the Gospels, you go, ooh, Judas. 
But he was just one of the dudes, one of the guys. He was just there. Do you watch The Chosen? The end of the last season? Judas shows up, and he's the nicest looking guy. He's just this, this guy who just comes in, and he's like, hi, I'm Judas. Oh, hi, I'm Peter. And they're all <laughs> greeting, and everything's normal and fine. They had no idea that this man was the son of perdition of whom it would be better that he would never be born. You don't wear that on your sleeve, do you? Hi, Mr. Perdition, first name son of. That's, that's not a thing we do. So what creeps under the floorboards of your heart that only Christ sees? What selfishness have you allowed to fester and to grow into a big monster hiding in your heart? Consider the implications of Judas' complaint. What he does and what he says here is basically to say that such services hold no practical value for the needs of the world. Why do you come to church on Sunday morning? You're not giving to the poor, you're not feeding the poor, you're not uh, planting a tree, you're not doing anything out there. What, what you do in here seemingly has no impact on the world around you from the world's perspective, from the perspective of Judas Iscariot. Secondly, again, the implications of his complaint, such service holds no practical value to Jesus either. There's no practical value to the world. There's no practical value to Jesus. Oh, my feet smell really nice. Whoop-de-doo. What, what, how have you enhanced the quality of Jesus' life? There's no practical value. And again, if this were any other man, Judas would be right. It would be less foul for him to pocket the cash than for such worship to be poured out on a mere man. He would be in the right if what Mary was doing to Jesus, she was doing to just another person. He would have said, wow, you worshipped another person. I just stole his money. Christ's valuation has to exceed our own perception, our own practicality. And another warning that comes from this that's very important to point out is that physical proximity or closeness to Jesus didn't guarantee right worship in Judas's life. He lived with him for three years. I think all of us, if we were given the opportunity to live in person with Jesus for three years, would think, I'm going to come out of that better than I've ever been. I mean, perfect discipleship every single day. I'm set. Guys, he betrayed him for 30 silver coins. He knew him. He laughed with him. He traveled with him. He was one of the guys. Closeness to Jesus didn't guarantee right worship. That looks a little different for us today, obviously, because Jesus isn't here in the flesh. But do you imagine that some of the things that you do are the reason that you can say, I'm good with Jesus because, you know, I haven't missed a Sunday since blank time or because I have offered this amount of money or because I've done these things. Mary didn't say, Jesus, I know how you're going to love me now. Watch. I'm pretty great, aren't I? That's not Mary's attitude. Where is she? At the feet of Jesus. What does she say? Nothing. There's no wonderful declaration of faith or praise even said. That's why something like Psalm 95 just fits so beautifully over the life of Mary in this moment. Does the word of God fit beautifully over your life? Does it show the value of Jesus? Does it show that what he's done at the cross was so impacting that you must offer a right sacrifice of worship because you see him for who he truly is. 
It would have been easy for some, perhaps, having their brother raised to say, hey, Jesus, you did a pretty great miracle. How much do I owe you? Uh, Naaman said that. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? When Elijah said, hey, go dip seven times in the River Jordan and your leprosy is going to go away, he sent servants and said, pay him, give him money. He deserves something. we got to even these things out. The cross tells us there is no evening things out with God. We already said, it was finished on the cross. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing left for him to say of you, now what will you give me in return? There is only a sacrifice of worship. There is only a heart that says, when I see Jesus for who he truly is, there's nothing he could ask of me that I would hold back. But Jesus doesn't ask anything of us in the sense of, well, you're going to have to make things square here. I gave my life after all. The heart of the person who offers right worship is the heart that says, what of mine could not be his? What could he ask me to do that I would say, I'll do anything but that? To Judas, Christ couldn't be worth a year's salary. To Mary, there was no price she wouldn't pay to explain his worth to others. To Judas, it was offensive to give so much. To Mary, the family estate would be too small a gift. To Judas, it was a great injustice to so worship Christ. But Mary sacrifices for Christ because she has all she needs in him. Judas sacrifices Christ himself because he has nothing in him. In the beginning of his complaint, why? Why, Judas? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as John told us in the beginning of this gospel, John the Baptist. Here we find grace, unmerited favor, getting a good thing we don't deserve. We find mercy, the gift of saying the punishment has been paid on your behalf. You're not getting that bad thing that you do deserve. Here we find justification. That is to say that the price of making me right with God is paid in full and justice is satisfied in what Christ has done because his blood was poured out. Are you willing to pour out your life? Are you willing to break the jar that you've been holding in the back room and you say, ah, I don't know if Jesus is worth that. And again, I'm not saying it's money. I'm not saying it's your car, your house. I'm saying it's your heart. It's the heart of Mary that was broken and poured out over Jesus' feet. Holy devotion. Holiness means set aside. She didn't say, hey, I got a lot of spike nard here. Jesus, your feet. Hey, other disciples, you guys too, you're pretty important. Jesus is in a class of his own. And she realized, well, he's not getting out of here without falling on his face, so I better clean his feet off with my hair. Jesus allows such wicked betrayal of Judas in order that his glory might be all the clearer to us and that we might be compelled to sacrificial worship because it was through the betrayal of Jesus that he ended up on the cross in the first place, right? That had to happen. That's why in another place where Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper and they're talking about the betrayal, he looks right at Judas and says, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. And he didn't say quickly, like, just rip the Band-Aid off. He was like, I am ready to go to the cross for my sheep. I am ready to pay the ultimate price to glorify my Father and to let everyone know who God truly is. So is he worthy of your sacrificial worship? Imagine heaven. 
Every possible resource in heaven is expended for the purpose of worship. Every resource, every golden uh, brick and on the sidewalks, you know, the, all the things that we talk about, every single thing that exists in the heavenly realms exists to glorify Christ. You, you don't have an aspect of it that is dedicated in any other direction. Revelation chapter 5. Get there quick, hurry up. Revelation 5, verses 11 to 14 say this. John, who's seeing a vision of heaven, says, and this is the same John too, by the way. He says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, a voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, that's thousands, hundreds, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No commas in that sentence. Everything is what Christ is worthy of. And I heard every creature, he says in verse 13, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. That's the whole place. Psalm 95, he made the sky, he made the sea, he made the land. He's worthy of it all. Here it is, culmination. Revelation verse 13 continues. They were saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You can say amen after that. Because that's what they said. <laughs> the four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. Are you compelled to write worship this morning? If not, you need a better valuation of Christ because there is nothing he is unworthy of. See to it that at the end, the jar of your life is broken for the sake of worshiping Christ. The ointment of Mary's offering was so much she needed to wipe it off of his feet. Eternity will never be enough time for you to say, all right, Jesus, we're done. We just sang Amazing Grace for the eight millionth time. We got to do something else. How's that other hymn go? Oh, don't ask questions you don't know the answer to. Anyway, <laughs> eternity will not be enough time. Leave it at that. Secondly, this offering, this thing I've been wanting, this has been the most profound thing to me in this passage, verse 3, this offering that Mary offers, it says, I'm still in Revelation, it says that the, the uh, perfume filled the house. People were going to notice. What is going on over there? That's a beautiful smell. What? It's, that's not food. That's perfume. What, what is going on? And somebody else might have come by and said, Mary's poured out the spike nard on the feet of Jesus. And there, the distinction happens. One person hears it and goes, what a waste. And another person goes, that's just a small portion of what he's really worthy of, isn't it? And it makes perfect sense that Mary would do such a radical thing to show us the value of Christ. The world needs to see your worship, church. It needs to see your valuation of Christ in the right way. Not just Sundays, of course. So does your life of worship reveal the glory of Christ? Break the jar today. Do it for the sake of personal holiness and devotion as Mary did. This past week, our reading plan brought us to 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, one of my favorite passages. Not that I like running as much as I used to when I was a young man. But 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul's not saying, hey, only one of you is getting to heaven, so book it. <laughs> what he's saying is, is that the attitude of the Christian is one who says, I'm not just 
you kind of, kind of jog to the end. I should probably slow down. Let's, no. The attitude of the person in right worship to God is I am going full tilt, full sprint all the way to the end so that when I cross the finish line, I collapse because there's nothing left in the tank. So our cross-country coach used to say all the time is don't, don't finish the race and say, oh, man, I could have I done a little bit more. I, I probably could have knocked off another three seconds. Run so that when you get to the end, there's nothing left. There was nothing else that you could have said, oh, Jesus, I could have given you that day, that time, that thing, what, whatever that was, might be. Run the race of your life so as to attain the prize of Christ, which is to have nothing left but all to Jesus. Mary didn't realize what she had done when Jesus says, He's, she's done this for my burial. She didn't have some kind of omniscience to say, yes, I know it's time to anoint Jesus for his uh, crucifixion. But Jesus did know. And you might not know what the significance of you standing up in a minute to sing, all to Jesus I surrender. You might not think that that's, not, that's very much to do, singing a song. But in the heart of Jesus, he sees where real worship is, and he says, I'll take it. That's mine. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's the one I love. That's the one I laid my life down for. And it is pleasing to him to receive a sacrifice of worship. Is he worth it? Do you have anything left to surrender this morning? Then surrender it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you that even as we come to sing this hymn that is one of those hymns that we got to kind of cringe in our hearts a little bit, like, am I really willing to sacrifice everything, to surrender everything to Jesus? Lord, help us to see him, to fix our eyes on the one who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory and power and wisdom and strength and all the things we read in Revelation 5. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.